Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, please. One of the reasons that I enjoy uh, uh, directing the choir, and I've had a chance to direct a couple of uh, large groups in the past, and, and to stand right here is because the music is always the best, right in the middle, right in the front. Uh, I, I, I grew up uh, playing and singing music and being around it in church, and it's just such a part of my life. I suppose that's why one of the first major purchases that Sue and I made was a stereo system. Uh, That's back in the old days when we called it a stereo system. (laughs) Because every part was separate. You had speakers and the receiver and the turntable, tape deck, whatever you're gonna have. so I had a, a friend who, who offered me an opportunity to get in on a deal he was doing, and, and we bought some, some very high-end equipment for the time. And uh, I'm still using it in my office uh, 30, 36 years later, and uh, it, uh, it still uh, can blow the doors off the room if you wanted to do that. Uh, I was down at our audio supplier sometime you know, uh, in the last few years talking to them about something we needed to buy, and, and I was telling them about my, my JBL speakers, and she said, those are collectible. <laughs> Translate that, cha-ching. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I did used to use them when we had a youth choir, or we had a group that would go and sing somewhere, so I cut holes in the bottom and put a mount there so you could put it on a pole to, to put it up for a sound system. And the cha-ching went kathunk right then. <laughs> I went on eBay this week. I saw a pair of those advertised for 1,200 bucks. Yeah, and one headline on them said, the legendary, you know, one of a kind, and I thought, yeah, that's in my office. That's in my office. (laughs) I did not know what I had, and so I did not treat them right, and now they are not as valuable as they used to be. One of the big messages in 1 Corinthians 3, and and especially in the section we're coming to today in verse 16, is this. God has given us a life that is infinitely valuable, but it's got to be handled properly. And the Corinthians were not doing so. Let's read about it in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Do you not know that the temple of God that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or things present or things to come. They are all yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. The thing that we're going to learn today from this passage of Scripture is this. We can only gain God's reward if we conduct our life and ministry according to his plan. Christianity is not something that we enter through faith in Christ as our Savior 
and then live any way we want and expect at the end of life to show up in heaven and God to say, hey, good job, glad to have you. Now, we're not talking about losing salvation, especially for those of you that might be new today. Uh, I don't believe God's word teaches that you can become a Christian and then lose that salvation. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about reward and God's recognition at the end of life and how we live between now and then. What does God's plan for our life include? Well, it starts with this. We've got to handle God's temple carefully. Look again at verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? Um, If we were to isolate verses 16 through 23, we would find some of the meaning that God intends, but we really need to back up and, and catch the flow of this truth and the reference to the temple, which takes us really back to verse nine to begin with. We are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. Now there's a number of words that God uses to describe us as Christians and the body of Christ, but here he he calls us the building and then he calls us his temple. And throughout these first three chapters of Corinthians, there is a dual reference in the word temple and in the idea. We're inclined to always think of that verse that says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so especially as Americans, we think of it very individualistically. I am the temple of God. But the point that is being made throughout chapters two and three in particular is you are the temple and I am the temple. There are two ways that God uses it. And the first, um, the, the word has a dual reference and the first is this one that's real familiar to us. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit whom is in, who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? And clearly that is a, an instruction to us about how we live our lives individually. We are the temple of God. It's also stressed in this passage from 2 Corinthians. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, what communion has light with darkness, what accord has Christ with Belial, or that's another word for the devil, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever. You see, if if there was any doubt about these two categories, here it is right here. He's equating the believer with Christ, the unbeliever with the devil, and he says, how can these two things come together? And what agreement has the temple of God, that's the believer, with other kinds of temples, idol worship? You are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. And so there is a personal aspect to the temple, but there's also a corporate aspect. Listen to this from Ephesians 2. Now, therefore, you are no longer, you, you Christians are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. See the the imagery, the household, the foundation. Jesus Christ being the cornerstone, that's how they started a foundation back in the day. In whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. 
there is a sense in which you personally, individually, are the temple of God. There is also a sense in which when all of those individual temples come together, we are the temple of God, as well as the whole body of Christ, which is all believers of all time. God dwells in us, not in this building. You know, the proper way to say it is, you are the church, you are the called out ones. This is the church building. This is where we come together to meet. God doesn't dwell in this place until we're here. God works through us. We are his temple. We are a place of worship. We, we sing songs of worship. We have the Lord's Supper. We pray together. We are a place of worship as well as I am a person of worship and you. And when we come back to 1 Corinthians 3, and the Apostle Paul says to them, don't you know that? He says, don't you know that you are the temple of God and the body of Christ is the temple of God? That little phrase, don't you know, is used a number of times throughout the New Testament, and it's always a rhetorical question, which means he, he knows that they know the answer. But he's saying it to get him to think. Don't you know? You are the temple of God. And they're going, yeah, I know that. I remember you taught that when you were here. So he's trying to get them. They have, they have essentially set that truth aside by accident or on purpose. And he's saying, hey, get a hold of this truth and bring it right back to what's going on right now. Don't you know you're the temple of God? and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will literally defile him. It's the same word, defile and destroy. Whatever it means for defile, it means for destroy as well. There's a reference here to the temple. Let's go back to the Old Testament and see somebody who defiled the temple. From 2 Kings, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became the king and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And, and if you don't quite grasp that, what it means is he went back to worshiping idols in the same way and the same gods that the people who used to be in the land where they lived. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, Jerusalem is supposed to be where my name is. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. I, I know we don't have an altar, we don't offer sacrifices, but could you just imagine if somebody came in here and said, well, I, I see you, you worship Christ, I'd like to put an altar right, I'd, I'd like to put a little Buddha statue right here. Would that be okay? <laughs> and, 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 and you see, for all the host of heaven, in other words, there was a whole bunch of idols in the temple. And no doubt he practiced what many in, sinfully did in the Old Testament. They would worship God and the other gods. Maybe it's kind of covering your bases, I don't know. But that's what he did 
He built altars for the host of heaven. Now, what, how did God respond to that later in the same chapter? And the Lord spoke by his servants, the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, that's a word for something God hates. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I'm bringing such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both of his ears will tingle. Both of his ears, and now, God wasn't saying literally your ears are going to tingle, but he was using a, a, a hyperbole to say people are going to go, what? Such calamity that people's ears will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plummet, of the, the plummet line of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish wiping it and turning it upside down. So I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance. That, in other words, I will walk away from the people of Israel and I will deliver them into the hand of their enemies and they shall become victims of plunder to all their enemies. That's how seriously God took the temple in the Old Testament. That's a picture for us. 1 Corinthians 10 says we ought to learn from the examples of the Old Testament. God takes his temples very seriously. He wants them handled very carefully. When there was only two of us in our house and not very many belongings, we needed to move from one place to another. We started out living in the church, then we made it to an apartment, then we made it to a little house, then we made it to a bigger house. And we need, one of those moves, we needed to, to move. And I went to a fellow in the church, and I said, hey, could I borrow your pickup truck? And he looked at me really seriously, deadpan, dead serious, and he said, I don't even let my wife put her groceries in the back of that pickup truck. <laughs> and he wasn't joking, and I didn't borrow the pickup truck. <laughs> that is a holy truck. That's what the word holy means. It means set aside for special use. And God says the temple in Jerusalem was set aside for him. It, it was holy unto him. It wasn't holy in itself. It was dedicated to him. It was set aside for him. And, and when that king came in and put idols in it, God said, that's not going to last. And he said, I will wipe Jerusalem like one wipes out a bowl. Wow. Now, we also ought to note in terms of the Old Testament era, this was at the end of period after period after period of that kind of behavior, interspersed with some godliness. But it came to a point where God said, no more. Now, let's come back. 1 Corinthians three sixteen. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? And if we go back to verse 9, you are God's building. It's not popular in our country, maybe not anywhere in the world, but I don't live there, to say, somebody owns me. God owns you, Christian. He has given you eternal life in heaven by the death of his son, Jesus Christ. He owns you. You are his temple. He, his Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, 
also they come and dwell in you. And this is God's temple. The First Baptist Church of Ferndale. It's been here for a hundred and pushing 130 years. This is his temple. And we have to take it seriously. What does it mean? What is the serious part? We're going to come back to these words destroy because he hasn't told us what the problem is yet. Let's go on to verse 18, then we'll come back to what, what it means to the destroy part. Verse 18 says, So let no one deceive himself. You know, it's not an accident that verse 18 comes after verse 17. So when we're trying to say, what's the big deal about the temple? It's in the whole context, before and after that verse. Let no one deceive himself. If he thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool in this age, so that he may become wise to God. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. The truth that God is trying to get across to us is this. We have to embrace his wisdom alone or else we are going to defile the temple. When we live by his wisdom, we honor him. When we live by the wisdom of the world, we defile our temple. As a church, we have to live by God's wisdom, not by the wisdom of the world. Turn with me back to chapter one, verse 11, and let's follow a little path here because really the, the, the first four chapters of this book are one big theme. Verse 11 of chapter one, it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, that those of, by those of Chloe's house, that there are contentions or arguments among you. Now I say this, each one of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Peter, I am of Christ. This was the, the root issue he's, he's addressing, but he's showing what's all connected to it. They had divided up in groups, and they had the Paul party, and the Peter party, and the Apollos party, and the Christ party, and they were argumentatively dividing among themselves. Down to verse 19 of chapter 1. And this is what God says to them. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Now down to verse 26. For listen, folks, you see how you were called to become Christians. Not many wise, according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame. And so on. Down to verse 29. That no flesh should glory in his presence. Now we're getting close to the real issue. Go to verse Chapter 2, verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, of worldly wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. And then he talks about God's wisdom in verse 9 when he says, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. He says God's wisdom comes from God, not from other people. And then down to chapter three, verse four. When somebody says, I am of Paul or I am of Apollos, are you not acting like people of the world? And then in verse 11, he says, the foundation you need to lay is the foundation of Christ. 
And so there's a big contrast being drawn throughout these first three chapters between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom, between trying to live out your Christianity with worldly ideas or living out your Christianity with godly ideas. And when I say it like that, it almost sounds like, well, that's silly. But the problem is we don't put those words on it. We adopt concepts and ideas from the world and so we, we sort of Christianize them, and, and then as we live them out, they don't sound so bad, but when we say, are we, we, we need to examine, am I trying to live the Christian life as a worldly person? Am I trying to, to conduct the ministry of Christ in the local church by the wisdom of the world? In verse 21 of chapter three, he kind of sums this pattern up when he says, therefore, let no one boast in men. The real problem is they were going, boy, Apollos, he's great, he's great, he's great. Now, it wasn't Apollos' fault. He wasn't participating in it. In fact, he left the church and moved on to other ministry, I think in part because of that stuff. But the people were, were holding up and saying, my group is better than your group. And, and, and the, the so what as it comes down is stop boasting in men. And in verses 18 through 20, we find the reason not to boast in men. If you think you're smart, you should become a fool so you really will be wise. That's kind of a, a riddle. We go, what in the world is that talking about? Go to verse 19. The wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Let me put it to you this way. Do you think you're smarter than God? Do you think you're smarter than God? Do you think the people of the world are smarter than God? Now, when we, when we say it that way, we go, well, of course not. When we either forget God's truth or fail to learn God's truth and instead embrace the ideas of the day, we are saying, this is smart stuff. But what we don't realize we're saying is, oh, you know, the Bible, it's been here for 2,000 years. Could it really be speaking to modern man's complex life? And when we start talking that way, we have fallen into <laughs> the wisdom of this age which, according to verse 19, is foolishness with God. The Corinthians apparently kept forgetting this truth. They kept talking about various teachers. This thing of the division and the teachers went on for a couple of years. This is a, this is a long-term problem. The specific sin of the Corinthians was this dividing and following men, but there is a general principle about elevating man's wisdom over God's wisdom. And so we need to ask the question, what's wrong with man's wisdom? Well, there's two words that's used in this passage to describe it, and the first one is age. The wisdom of this age, and it refers to a time period or an era. You know, we would talk about... Um, the modern era or the medieval era or you know the the 60s or the 70s that's what the word age is referring to and then the word world uh we get our word cosmetic or cosmos from it the world system 
What is the, what is the essence here? Uh, the essence is this. This is talking about society at large and man's wisdom that is the result of the majority influence. This word for wisdom is talking about the, the wisdom that is popular right now. Let me, let me give you some examples. Maybe this will help you to understand. When we talk about the wisdom of an age or a time period, have you read about the era in which it was called good medical practice to cut someone and let them bleed to relieve the pressure? Bleeding. Yeah, I mean, if you haven't read about it or seen it in a movie, people actually did. They'd cut because you, you got too much pressure. That's why you have a headache or you have this or that. And people thought, this is, this is really smart. Makes you wonder about medical practice today, huh? There was a time when the world thought, when the people of the world thought that the earth was flat, and a fair number of those were Christians, by the way, and other people came up saying, you know, we need to explore and experiment and try to figure out, because we think the world's actually round, and those people went, you're stupid! And there was even oppression by parts of the church, quote-unquote, against that. The wisdom of the age was completely wrong. There was a time not so long ago in our country when a great many people believed that people of color were less than human. There's a popular TV show right now that portrays a past age in England called Downton Abbey. It portrays the old English world of the wealthy aristocracy and all of the servants who worked for them. And it was entirely common and proper in that era to believe some people are born to the aristocracy and some people are born to be servants and never the twain shall mix and, and the idea that you're gonna come up through to our world, forget that. And we... We enjoy watching the TV show and we go, wow, look how they used to think. Isn't that crazy? It's just as crazy as, as the people in the country of India who believe that you're born into a certain caste and you can't move out of that caste. Do you know that some of those castes even translate to this country? In India, there is a caste of taxi drivers. There is a caste of people who are merchants or shop owners, a caste of farmers, and when they come over here, they stick right in their caste because that's the way it is, right? It's the wisdom of an age. And we look at that and go, wow, that's silly, that's crazy, that's, you know, whatever. The problem is sometimes we just can't see the wisdom of our age that is just as foolish the problem with our wisdom is twofold. When we think of the, the, these, these words here especially, first of all, man's wisdom is limited by his existence. Why do people come up with such crazy ideas in certain eras? Because man can only see what he can see and experience what he can experience. He can't see beyond. He can't see the past. He can't see the future. He is limited by his physical existence. Science, as we call it today, 
says you can know what you can observe. And when it comes to the, the, the physical world, there's a lot of good truth there, a lot of good factual concepts. But there is a limitation, and the limitation is I can only know what I can observe or, or touch with my senses. And the other aspect of the limitation on, on man is his morality. Man's morality limits his wisdom. Because although they glorified God, they did not glorify him as, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. See, the Apostle Paul's writing the book of Romans, he says there are opportunities for people to contemplate the universe, and there are moments at which they go, wow, this is really something. And some of those people even come to the, to the, to the knowledge of saying, boy, some, somebody had to make this thing. And he said, some of those people, when they come to that point, they don't glorify God. They don't go, wow, I, I better find out who made this whole thing. No, they don't glorify God. They're not thankful. They become futile. Uh, no point, no, no real outcome, no product to their thoughts. Their foolish hearts are darkened. What, what, what does it mean when they become futile? They profess themselves to become wise, and so they become fools in God's eyes, and instead of worshiping God, instead of the glory of the incorruptible God, they change that glory into the glory of created beings. And they worship man, or they worship the planet, the environment. What does this mean in regard to defiling God's temple? It means we need to be very careful that the wisdom we base our life and ministry on is God's wisdom, plain and simple. Now, this starts with the gospel of Christ. Okay? Uh, when I was in... Uh, when I was in Bible college, we had a man from a different religion come to our, church, our, our school, and somebody said, what do I have to do if I'm a member of your religion to go to heaven when I die? And he said, that's a really hard question. And that religion is known all over the world. If somebody comes to you and says, what do I have to do to go to heaven when I die? You ought to be ready to drop and give them 20. I mean, you ought to be right now to go, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. I don't like believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Okay, well, you can do it some other way then. Is, you know, that's what we actually do, though, isn't it? Say, you know, those people aren't going to like that, so I'm not going to say anything to them. God says, listen, there is one message about salvation, and you need to cling to it, and you need to declare it. Some people are going to like it. Some people are going to hate it. But this is my temple, and don't you dare give out a different message. Because when you give out a different message, then I'm coming around going, you guys are in trouble. We should tremble before God's word to make sure that we preach it in all of its purity and simplicity, starting with the gospel of Christ. A well-known TV preacher was on Larry King a couple, three years ago. And Larry basically said, Aren't, don't you believe that people are going to go to hell if they don't believe in Christ? And this guy did everything possible not to answer that question, and he did not answer it. 
I don't like the truth of hell. I don't like to think that anybody's gonna go there, but I don't have the right to mess with the message because it is God's message and this is his temple. When we think of caring for the temple, we need to think about personally and as a group. We have to develop methods, for instance, of of managing the church based on God's word, not the latest business principles. I love Warren Wiersbe's comments on this. He he said this in a way that I think really encapsulates and captures it. It it comes as a shock to some church members that you cannot manage a local church in the same way you run a business. Now, this does not mean we should not follow good business principles, you know, when it comes to accounting or banking or, you know, some of that stuff. But this is what he said that I thought was so well put. The operation of a church is totally different from a business. The world depends on promotion, prestige, and the influence of money and important people. The church depends on prayer, the power of the Spirit, humility, sacrifice, and service. The church that imitates the world may seem to succeed in time, but it will turn to ashes in eternity. That's what we're celebrating today. We are succeeding because virtually everybody who comes to this church takes a part in some way. We're not succeeding because we have some stars, some prima donnas, some some really important people that do this or that. We have got to hold on to God's morality, not that which man has reasoned out. Last week, I, I believe it was just this week or within the last two weeks, World Vision, the big compassion ministry, came out with a a public announcement and said, uh, we're not going to prohibit married homosexuals from working for our ministry anymore. And I think everybody in the evangelical world went, what? And about, I'm not kidding you, about two days later, they put out another announcement and said, oh, not really, we were just kidding. They didn't say they were kidding, but they changed. They, they went back on it. Now, I don't know what, I haven't bothered to research what's going on, what pressure are they getting. I, I, don't, I don't get that. Listen, do I like to say to some people, the way you're living is ungodly? No, I don't enjoy that. I don't enjoy that any more than I had to go to my kids and say, shape up or you're gonna get a little reminder. But I'm God's temple. They're God's temple. This is God's temple. I don't get to mess with it. And that's the big message here. Don't elevate the wisdom of man. Make sure you're living your life, conducting your ministry by the ministry of Christ. When we bring man's wisdom into God's temple, whether it's personal or corporate, We put ourselves under God's discipline. Look at verse 17 now. If anyone defiles the temple of God, he will destroy him. Now again, the word for defile is the same Greek word, same form and everything as the word for destroy. So whatever the first word means is the same thing that the second word means. And if we back up to verse 15, we understand that the eternal picture here is this. There are some people who will end up in eternity knowing Christ as Savior, but when God examines their life, there will be nothing to reward. But they still don't lose their salvation. 
Now, I know uh, some folks who believe that you can lose your salvation say, this is the problem with that doctrine of security because you're going to tell everybody they can live any way they want and still end up in heaven. First of all, I don't believe that. I believe that if you really are a Christian, God's going to work in you and you're going to want to live for him. But here's the motivation of this chapter. You're going to stand in front of Christ someday. And he is going to examine your life. And if you think you can live any way you want and then walk into heaven and go, hey, Jesus, what's happening, dude? You're going to be sadly mistaken because when you walk into his righteousness, into the presence, into the presence that Peter, James, and John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration that made them fall down on their knees and go, wow, we need to build a place of worship here. If you think you're going to sashay into that presence and arrogantly say, good to see you, you are sadly mistaken. I've made a couple of mistakes in my life that got me called into the principal's office, so to speak. I won't tell you which principal's office it was. Let's just say it wasn't in school. And I had to go in and listen to that person say, hey, did you do this? Yeah? That ain't right. Uh-oh. I didn't, I didn't care for that at all. I don't know about you. I can't imagine what it's going to be like to stand in front of Jesus when he says, what were you doing? You're wasting your time. But this idea of God getting after us, the, 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 the base meaning of this word has to do with literally to, 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 uh, to, to, uh, to mar or to mess it up. If I was to take a, a piece of sandpaper and go ur, 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 on this piano, we would say I just marred the finish on the piano. And it's something like that is what God is saying. He's saying when you bring man's wisdom into your life, into the temple of God, you're just ruining what's there. There's a beautiful thing there, and you're messing it up. And he says, if you do that, I'm coming after you. I don't know about you, but I don't want God coming after me. God loves his temple. Now, how does God come after us well hebrews 13 says he comes after us in discipline does or hebrews 12 excuse me hebrews 12 talks about the discipline of god and by the way this is talking about this is talking about here and now as well as the loss of reward in the future i don't want the discipline of god that's one of the reasons i confess sin i don't always feel like saying no to sin I think, oh man, I, I don't want to live that way. I don't want to be under God's judgment. I do want to be under God's blessing. And so I say no and I confess and I walk with the Lord because this is his temple and I've got to take care of it. If we, if we turn this passage in a positive way right now, look at verse 21 through 23. The, I believe the phrase, the first half of verse 21 is what I would call a pivot. And by a pivot, I mean, when you see the word therefore, it always connects what is in the past down to this thought, but it also connects it on to what's going to be said just ahead. And so it's almost like verse 21 is, is sort of the, the application or the moral of this story, 
but it's the introduction to the next little piece of scripture. He says, therefore, let no one boast in men. Don't be bragging about men. Don't hold up men as some, some, some super thing in place of God. And, and, and he says, also, let's go forward now. Don't boast in men because all things are yours. Whether it's Paul or Paulus or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, they are all yours and you are Christ and Christ's are God. Here's the big, this big third point. We've got to elevate God's leadership. We, we don't elevate men. We don't boast in men or, or, or man's ideas. We elevate God's leadership. What he's saying in this verse is, you, you have limited yourself to one man. The reality is all of these men are yours. So don't elevate one man. Look at this thing. This is a coloring page from a big church back east called the Elevation Church. And, you know, in my old age, I don't name names too much, but this one was in a magazine. I've copied this out of a magazine, so... I'm not the first guy to bring this up. And this is a coloring page for kids in church. There's the pastor, there's the people, and the kids are given this page to color while they're in church to keep them busy. You know what it says on there? This is the pastor's name, the church's name. It says, we are united under the visionary. And this is a kid's coloring page, right? At the bottom of the page it says, Elevation Church is built on the vision God gave Pastor Stephen. We will protect our unity in supporting his vision. Ooh, get away from that. How about just take the pastor out of the picture and and, and elevate God's word and God. That's what... This is the kind of thing that this passage is about in particular, saying we follow this guy, we follow this guy, this guy's really got it going on, not that guy. And, and, and God is saying, hey, why limit yourself to one of God's children, one of God's leaders? Leon Morris put it this way so far from enriching themselves by staking their claim to exclusive rights on one teacher, the Corinthians were impoverishing themselves. They were cutting themselves off from the treasures that were really theirs. When Paul writes, all things are yours, he is saying there is no reality to your concept of the superiority of one man. All believers have all things in common. There's no basis to boast and there's no need. We are all equally great before God because we can all possess his word. Warren Wiersbe says, if, there, if all things belong to all believers, why should there be competition and rivalry? These, these words near the end of the life of Christ talk about this as well. I don't pray for these alone, but I pray for those who will believe, that's you and me, through their word. See, I'm not praying just for the the apostles, I'm praying for the believers that'll come from them. That they may all be one, Father, as you are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, 
And the glory which you gave me I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Did you see this? I in them, you in me. You see how we're all wrapped up together in God. Why boast in this guy or that guy? We're in Christ, and Christ is in God, and we're all in this together, and so what we ought to be elevating is God and his leadership. I have a friend who has season tickets for the Seahawks. He's an old friend from our our days on the other side of the county 30 years ago, and we caught up with him when we first got here, and oh, he loves the Seahawks. I'm telling you, he really loves the Seahawks. He's not a belly painter, but just short of that. And I can imagine he was out of his mind when the Seahawks won the Super Bowl. I, I was going to try to get a hold of him this week and see if he went to the Super Bowl. I wouldn't be surprised. God says we need to be out of our minds excited over him and over his word. And if we are, then we will live a life that honors him and gains his reward. Heavenly Father, we're here to lift you up today. Jesus, we're here to lift you up. Holy Spirit, we're here to lift you up. We confess that we have been attached to some ideas, to some people. Some of them have been worldly. Some of them might even have been godly, but we got too attached to them and not enough attached to you. We're here to say we love you. We serve you. We want to dedicate this temple of our body and this church to you, and we want to guard that temple for you by clinging to your word, by living your word. Help us to do it. I pray in Christ's name, amen.